But within professional education, there's a lot of different use cases, right? Getting a job right, as an outcome is a fundamentally different use case than where reforges is, I have a job and I have a business problem and I'm looking to solve that business problem faster. My name is Ish Bade and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss boot camps, online education, and how the internet is changing how we learn. Hey everybody, Ish here, joined today by Brian Belfour, founder and CEO of Reforge. Brian, so great to have you on today. Would you be able to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, my my 30-second background is uh, born and wit, raised Midwesterner in Michigan and uh, got in the tech scene really early in my career. I started my first venture back company in the social gaming boom during the Zynga, Farmville, like K-Day. I sold that company to a mobile ad company called Tapjoy. Then helped start my first education company or co-found my first education company called Boundless Learning. We developed a way to take textbooks that cost a few grand per year here in the U.S. for college students. And, and we were able to produce a what would take a textbook publisher like two years and two million bucks to produce. We got it down to like 30 days and 10 grand of capital. And uh, it was an amazing product. Got it to millions of college students. But we basically uh, a couple things, got a couple things wrong with the business. We also got sued by the three biggest textbook publishers, which because they were trying to protect their monopolies, it was a crazy ride. But we ended up selling that to a textbook rental company. Then uh, spent a few years at HubSpot as VP of growth there in the SaaS world. And out of that came Reforge and been working on Reforge for about the past six years. Yeah. And that's super exciting history. And in a lot of ways, I, your career really prepared you to start Reforge. And so I guess walk us through what was the key insight that led you to thinking that something like Reforge needed to exist? And also take us back in time and help us understand the landscape of the time. Like what else was, what was your alternatives if Reforge didn't exist? Yeah. I think, I think oftentimes when founders tell the origin stories of companies, it feels like this big bang insight moment. And then when you like really dig in with them, you realize that it was just a lot of small things that added up over time and then created this like stars aligning moment. And so for me, there was a lot of those little moments, right? Like both my parents were teachers, right? Like education was a very big part of my upbringing. I went to a great university, the University of Michigan, but I had a very unfulfilling college experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, go blue. Yeah, on, but I had an unfulfilling college experience there from an education perspective. And, and then I like started my first company during college that it didn't work out. And I got this chip on my shoulder, which launched me into tech and entrepreneurship, which I didn't know much about, but I like learned my way through like self-learning and, and self and got, got me really into professional development. And then at Boundless Learning, like I, I learned all about mass content creation and production processes. But I also learned there about the apathy of college students here in the US. And I tried to pivot that company to a professional ed company. At the time, we didn't end up doing it. But, but then I went to HubSpot and I learned XYZ. Anyways, all of these things that add up um, at, at the end of the day, that, and where it really came to a culmination was a, a few years into HubSpot, I had this amazing team. Every single week, I would sit in these one-on-ones. People would be asking me about professional development. And I'd spent all this time researching what to recommend for them. And most of what I found at the time was like either really designed to help people get a job, which was not the which were not my team, 
or it were it was like these things that were like very general topics it was like like general management and stuff like that and just it was so general that it just wasn't coming from the people it wasn't created by the people or that my team wanted to learn from it wasn't around the topics that they wanted to learn about it wasn't really relevant to what we were working on like it had all of these issues and so that just motivated me to put all of these little moments from history over time together and create this MVP on the side, which Andrew Chen and I created the first one. At the time, it was called Silicon Valley Business Review. We eventually renamed it to, to Reforge. But, and we just kind of dumped out all, everything that we had learned over our years like by working on stuff. And we just had an amazing reception to it. We have a couple thousand applications right out of the gate on, on the first one, the MVP. It was just the most instant product market fit that I had experienced in my career. But it's definitely like a culmination of a lot of these small moments and capabilities that I learned over time that 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 really gave me the insight or enabled you know the ability to execute on Reforge. Yeah. And then I think like Steve Jobs has said in the past is you can only connect the dots looking back. And so, yeah, looking That's back, right. you hear about all these experiences and it's, oh, it's obvious. Like Brian was like the right person to start this business at this time. I, I want to expand on that because I think that is obviously, I think a lot about career development. We talk a lot about it in Reforge. And, and I think one of the hardest things you get these really highly motivated people and they're in very career ambitious people. And they're trying to think through these questions of where do I want to be in five years? And looking forward like that, trying to connect the dots forward like that, it's just, it's impossible. Like I, at no point in my career would I have predicted where I was going to be five, you know, five years. I, I wouldn't have been even close. And worst case is that it actually leads us to these things that I think are false destinations. It leads a lot of people to thinking, if I want to be here in five years, I got to gather all of these certifications on my LinkedIn profile, or I've got to go work at Facebook and all these other things. And a lot of times those things don't matter in, in the professional development perspective. The only thing that matters is finding a meaningful problem to work on at your company and figuring out how to solve it and then communicating the work that you did to the world because that opens up more opportunities and kind of repeats the cycle. And it's that constant, it's that focus, not progress. That is what really propels you forward, creates optionality, opens doors for you. It's not the let me think where I want to be 10 years from now and work my way backwards, which is somewhat of an impossible exercise. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I think it's a common fallacy in Silicon Valley. And as a Facebook alum, I, I can say that's something I heard a lot on Menlo Park's campuses. You hear people talking about, oh, this is where I want to get. And then this is what I think I need to do until that. But it's shocking how, the, how it really is a fallacy. And in so many people actually can skip those steps. I think I, one of the most common things I hear from, I think, Fang engineers, and a lot of them are in my friend group today, is, oh, I want to start a company one day, but I want to pick up skills. And I think that this being here will pick up skills. And I know in the back of my heart is like, that's just not true. Like it's, it's almost, I think the analogy I make here is it's almost like wanting to be a professional soccer player, but you're, pay, you're practicing for that by playing basketball every single day. Yeah, yeah, there's commonalities, but it's a whole different sport. And the only way to get good at that sport is to just be doing that sport. 
And I guess that is, is definitely, that's something that I've seen definitely frustrating in Silicon Valley is that a lot of these steps are these false obstacles that you put in front of yourselves. Yeah, it's not only that, but you mentioned the word skills, which is another thing that I think the whole industry is over-indexed on, uh, which is like skills make you feel like, hey, it's almost like a video game, which is I add a little bit of strength here. I learn this spell here and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, like I'm I'm the superhero. And uh, But it doesn't work like that in the real life, unfortunately, because what that actually leads to is that people try to focus on the things that they can um, most easily measure. But the things that end up creating the most value in your career are the things that are hardest to measure. So for example, very easy for me to measure the skill of of how well SQL. That's something I can test, you know, te- give you a test against and benchmark you against other people super easily and, and measure that. But most of the time when you look at career progression, it's things like cross-functional influence or how do you like storytell or even something like let's just let's take a business problem of solving like for retention and engagement. These are things that are not only hard to measure, but somewhat impossible to measure. But they are the places that people hit terminal velocity in, in their careers. And, and so this overemphasis on the things that the skills and the things that we can measure versus taking a problem-based view on it, which is what are the meaningful problems that I need to solve? And then learning the methodologies and the capabilities alongside of that problem tends to end up leading to end up leading to better outcomes. But it's hard because your chief learning officer needs to report on the dollar ROI of their subscription to whatever. And so they want to say our our team went from B on SQL to A on SQL. Something like I'm making that part up. I'm obviously making that part up. But there's a lot of but your point is there's a lot of these perverse incentives and a lot of it carries over from our traditional education institutions and all that kind of stuff that just don't work in the career world. 100%. Yeah. For the time being, let me be devil's advocate and, and say that a lot of people who are maybe critics of professional development say like, it's not necessary. Like all these skills you will just learn on the job. Now, Convince somebody like that, why, I guess, where does Reforge fit into somebody's kind of career growth and in, why does somebody need a program, Reforge? Why can't you just learn some of these skills and build this network in, in the natural workplace? Yeah, I do think you learn quite a few things by working through the problem, but where Reforge comes in is that we are trying to unlock the insights from the world's best operators that have solved these types of problems before codify it into a set of tools and methodologies so that others can take those things and accelerate the time that it takes for them to solve that problem like the next time around. Why is that important? Because the most valuable thing to a company is time. The time it takes to solve these problems because that's what creates growth, the expense of these employees, all of this stuff. And if you don't go through the efforts of trying to give your team the resources to learn from those that came before them, what does your team end up doing? They reinvent the wheel over and over again. And it's one of the most inefficient things in the world. And part of this, and the part of the problem is that we, the quantity of information on the internet 
has created this false feeling that everything and anything is out there. And the more that I've done Reforge, the more that I've realized is that most modern business knowledge about the most problems are still trapped in the heads of a very small group of operators that are on the front lines of some of the fastest growing companies solving the the most like frontier problems. And it's about how do we like untrap that so that the next group and the next generation can build can build on top of that. And that's really what Reforge, that's really what Reforge is about and doing that. But it is it, but part of what you said is true, which is that all of our stuff aligns to we do not we do if somebody comes to us and says, um, hey, I, I want to be like a VP of like a VP of product in five years, like what programs should I take? We're like, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. And the question we ask them is, what is the business problem that you are working on right now or plan to work on next? And what is the program instead of things that is going to help you the most on those things? Because that's going to help you solve that problem faster in a more meaningful way. It's going to create more impact for the business and yourself, and then continue to open up more doors for you. So it is this hybrid of, I'm learning from the best, I'm not reinventing the wheel, but it's tied to the thing that I'm I am working on in the moment versus something that I might use 10 years from now. Yeah, 100%. And, and if I had to summarize what I'm hearing from you, is it, it, part of it is like active versus passive learning. Like it, a lot of it is, so yes, you will naturally learn these skills in the workplace, but if you're intentional about it, again, the you can condense that from being a matter of years to a matter of weeks. It's this idea of, yes, if I play a lot of basketball, I'll you know naturally become better at free throw shooting, but also... If I choose to practice free throw shooting, that's also what's going to make me better at this. And it's going to make me better faster because I'm focused on a very narrow set of skills now. Yeah. In the context of a company, you want to maximize the time that you can of your employee base of solving the problems that are truly unique to your company because those are the ones that unlock the most value. And you want to minimize the amount of time that your team spends on solving the problems that have been solved somewhere else before. You want to arm them with the capabilities to solve those problems the fastest so they can maximize their time. And that's really what knowledge work is about, is applying your knowledge to new and unique problems. It is not about the factory line mindset of where I'm just repeating the same thing over and over. And anyways, like that's like the, there's there's a lot of, thinking there's a lot of un, unwiring to do around some of that stuff. Yeah. And a big part of it also has to do with, I, I, I'm glad you bring up knowledge work because knowledge work is one of these concepts that didn't even exist 10 years ago. And one of the reasons for that is just in the age of the internet, we have industries disrupted constantly. And I think this poses a very difficult issue for very, your standard educational institutions and educators, they have this big obstacle in front of them, which is how do you create curriculum when the curriculum is changing or like the world is changing so quickly? And so I also went to University of Michigan and uh, my computer science curriculum was completely outdated. Just in the few years from graduating, everything I learned was completely irrelevant. And so I think now one of the things we're realizing is that this notion of a one-year, four-year degree being enough education for the entirety of your career just doesn't work because fundamentally by the time in just a few years, 
those skills are now outdated. And so you need to continue reskill and upskill. Otherwise, your skills just become obsolete. And that happens in now, it used to happen in a matter of decades. Now it happens in a matter of just a few years. Yeah. Look, the most valuable thing that happened to me in college, besides uh, the relationships and all of that stuff that I built, was that when I went to Michigan, I have a feeling this was before your years. So I think I'm a little older than you. Is that the B school was a two year program, which means you went to the literature, science, and arts program for two years, and then you applied, and then you applied into to the yeah, B school, yeah. right? And before it was called Ross, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for the first in in the first two years, you take all these weeder classes like accounting two hundred one and all that kind of stuff. I got denied from the B school because I did terrible in an accounting two hundred two class. It was like the most boring. To me, it was the most boring thing in the world. And and so what that inspired me to go do was in the second two years is that I just started a company. And when I started that company, I went to the dean of the entrepreneurship school at the time. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to start this internet company. Here's what it's all about, so on and so forth. And he's, ah, he's, I got the perfect thing to, to help you. And he handed me a book that I, I think the literal title was The Difference Between Internet and brick and mortar businesses. And literally the the book was brick and mortar businesses have a physical location. The internet companies don't have a physical. It was like that type of stuff. And I'm okay, totally unhelpful. And what it forced me to do is go figure out how to do how to problem solve and and self-learn, like how to gather a bunch of information, synthesize it, identify questions go find the right people to ask those questions to, right? Like it was like more of that type of motion versus everything being like perfectly like dictated, dictated towards me. Now I probably could have gone back. I could have probably gone back to my college education and designed something that mimicked that much more. Um, I just didn't know at the time. And really what it took to unlock it for me was getting denied, chip on my shoulder and then finding an idea that was like really meaningful to me, which provided that fuel to go learn that cycles. And just that motion of learning how to do that has paid off in spades like throughout my career because I've reinvented my career and what I do probably four or five times in major ways over the course of 20 years. And and one of the things that your story brought to light is actually how important it is to have educators who are in tune with the changes in industry. And so it's especially now, I feel like during the age of the internet, you need educators who are not even just teachers, but they have to be students of the industry. They have to be industry experts. And I'm curious how have you designed, I guess, Reforge in a way that allows, well, obviously teaching, teaching really meaningful, impactful industry relevant skills to students, but also when the industry changes, how do the teachers retrain and how, how, you, how do you make sure that the teaching staff is well-equipped uh, to pass on the most relevant skills to students? That's a loaded question. Yeah, so the, the way we build and deliver Reforge, what we typically do is once we identify a topic, we have a very rough version of a topic, we go find two leading operators in the space. They're typically VP, C-level people who have worked on this problem area in one or more like very fast-growing companies. Examples would be like, Casey Winters, who's chief product officer at Eventbrite, but was at Pinterest and then Grubhub before that and has done a, done a bunch of other things. We then work, basically do about 
depends on the program, 60 to 120 hours worth of primary research with them. And what we're doing is we're just asking a ton of questions of walking through the step-by-step of you face this problem. How did the problem come up? What were the steps that you went through? Why did you go through those steps? If you had to go back and do it all over again, what would you do differently? And what is extracted out of this are like these methodologies, these tools that help people. And and then, sorry, we pressure test it against a bunch of products, right? Uh, We to refine them further. And we come up with a bunch of examples. And so that's how we create the base of these programs and a lot of the material. But the way that we deliver them is what we call is the people who create programs with us is different than the people that deliver them. And the people that deliver them are what we call executives and residents. These are people that are in between gigs. They're taking time to figure out what's next. They're typically in this mode for 6 to 18 months. And, and also the same profile. And they spend a couple days a week with us. They deliver the programs to the students. They interact with the students. They bring in their network as like featured guests and case studies and deliver. So there's these experts, these leading operators at every step of the way. But there's two things about this. One is that first, the people who are really great at creating programs with us are always not the best people to deliver the programs and vice versa. And you see this in the traditional education institution where research and teaching and other things are all bundled together. But the best researchers aren't the best teachers and vice versa. And so you end up with these totally, it's just all, it creates all of these problems. So we separate those things. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes one person has created both, but not always. But the second thing is, is that through every evolution of the program, there's a fresh perspective on it that is then reabsorbed back into the main program. Both the executive and residents, as well as the featured guests that they bring in from their network are adding almost like a new layer of paint to it, like every single time. And that's how, and that's how these things both stay updated as well as provided with that, that perspective. Yeah, so you've essentially unbundled the role of professor and you have people focus on their zone of genius, whatever that is. And I think one of the things that are also is critical here with, with Reforge is that you're right, like the people you need to be bringing in terms of building out this curriculum aren't researchers or academics who haven't spent you know, a single day in industry. If the goal is to train people to progress in their careers in industry, you need operators. And so the fact that you're pulling in operators and building the curriculum based around their experiences, I think that's a big breakthrough. Yeah, it's. That doesn't, and to some that might not sound important, but it comes through in the small details that connect with people. In engineer, in engineering, for example, it doesn't matter what any function you talk about. There are some like common things that leaders need to do. They need to hire. They need to. There's general management skills that they need to learn. They need to learn cross-functional influence, how to manage up. Like these are things that whether you're a VP of engineering, a VP of product, a VP of sales, like you, you got to do all these things. But rather than teaching general management, if you teach those things in a functional specific environment with a functional specific operator, they're going to use specific language, specific examples, like all these details that resonate with somebody in a fundamentally different way and connect with them in a fundamentally uh, different way that when you teach it in a general nature, it just goes in one ear and out, out the rest or they don't, they have a hard time 
making the connection between the words and reality. And so it comes through in a lot of small ways, small but meaningful ways that that people might not see on the surface right away. Yeah. And one of the things that excites me about programs with Reforge, and I've seen it in my own professional life, is it's very fundamentally different than the education you're delivered in university. It's university, it's it's bundled up. And I remember just sitting in my kind of discrete mathematics class on North Campus and just bored out of my mind because I, I, I just couldn't imagine how any of these things connected to what I was trying to do. It was just like, okay, you need, you're somebody else is telling you like, hey, this is going to be useful one day. And actually I look back and less than 5% of it was really useful. And it, the education that I do right now, which is a lot of the online courses and programs that we forge, the thing that makes it so powerful is the second I sign up for it, I know how I'm going to use that tool. I, because it, you're not getting this four years worth of education. It's you're learning one very specific tool. And I know for my own business, look, right now, one of the things we're struggling with is like top of funnel SEO. This program is going to help me with this one specific problem. And I already, I can already see the ROI. Yeah. It's the difference between skill first and problem first. So in a skill first world, what we do is we go learn a hundred percent of the skill or a huge chunk of the skill. And then we get to the problem and no problem requires a hundred percent of that skill. It might need like a small percentage of it. So, so my, my utilization of it is small versus if I start with the problem and then work backwards and learn the things that I need to solve that problem, then I'm only going to, I basically try to learn and pick up the parts that, that I'm going to use to apply and, and solve that problem. Now, it's not 100% efficiency, right? Uh, like, it, you know, there's always a little bit of like start and stopping, trying and error and all that kind of stuff. But there's a couple of things about that. One is if you start with the problem first, my guess is if you didn't, it, the things that you're going to seek out are way more meaningful to you because that problem to you is super meaningful. Like solving that problem, you're passionate about that problem for some reason. Like you're trying to grow your business, you're trying to you're trying to do something, right? And so that alone is going to provide so much more drive and outcome just by just like having that fuel. And then the second thing is that you're gonna you're gonna learn or you're gonna pick up and go after and utilize a much higher percentage of the things that, that you go after by, by approaching it that way. And so I know I, I'm much less familiar with like K through 12 now. And you know, like I have not spent years there. I know there's tons of efforts that take like a similar approach to that. Now I, I'm getting back into it because I've got a kid that's about to turn three and they're preschool and all that kind of stuff. And I see all these approaches. Give me another five to six years. And uh, my guess is I'll, I'll geek out on it at some point. But But it's... I think I think it's just like just the ordering and sequencing of how we think about these things is it ends up being re- very meaningful. Yeah, and I think it's a problem not enough people talk about, which is ed- educational efficiency. Like of of what you're learning, how much can you actually put into use? And I think a part of it is that the student has to be bought into the ROI, and if they are, then they're way more invested in the education, and it just it absorbs more. And so I think that's one of the things that we're seeing now in industry is basically with the workforce education, like education post-graduation, you're not for you're not forced to take any of these programs, but you choose to take them because you see how that tool will help you get to that next stage. Yeah. The hidden secret of this industry is that the biggest companies in the industry, the ones generating the most revenue right now, at least like LinkedIn learning and stuff, the engagement 
in the utilization of their seats one year post-sale is abysmally low, like abysmally low. It's renewed for other reasons, right? Like it's there, it's seen as like a checkbox as a benefit to the individual, but they're really solving they're really solving the problem in a tops down way versus starting with the individual and going bottoms up. And what we're trying to do with Reforge, and I think there's some other good things in this space as well, is like really starting with that individual, like what resonates with them? What problems are they facing? Let's make sure that they love it and they're engaged. And then that kind of like spread, and then it like spreads up. It's harder. You got to be more patient um, and all things, but we think it's going to create better outcomes and be a fundamentally bigger business long-term. But I hope over the long-term, it's completely flipped in that the biggest revenue-generating machines are the ones that are being used the most, whereas that's not true today, which is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, people are aware of it now. Like We remember in the mid-2000s was the MOOCs, MOOC movement, and everybody thought, oh, MOOCs are going to completely disrupt university. And I think it was we talked a lot about this on the podcast and, and it was right at the time, like online education 1.0 was all about, we have all this information out in the world. How do we get it online? And MOOCs was a part of that movement, but this online education 2.0, which really I feel like started 2017 onwards has been with this realization that we need transformation. Like it's not enough just to have this education online. There needs to be accountability. You need to be able to deliver an outcome for students. If not, what's the point? of this educational program. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, go ahead. I would add to that though, that I think a lot of times it's easy for us to bucket professional education into, we just we, like professional, like one use case, but within professional education, there's a lot of different use cases, right? Getting a job, right? As an outcome is a fundamentally different use case than where reforges is I have a job and I have a business problem and I'm looking to solve that business problem faster. And one of the things that I think went missed with MOOCs is that a lot of the people that were engaging with MOOCs were just like interest-based. And, and so the fact that they didn't finish a full course, when you look at it through that lens, it's like to the users, like, oh, that's okay. They probably still got something out of it and sought out their, their interest. So to say that to say that they're, I think, like were a complete failure, I don't think so. In the specific use case of, hey, I'm doing this to get a job or make some other transformation is, I think, the word that you used. Yeah, there were some pieces missing that that needed that that needed to be added to to work close work closer to that. But I think we've really got to think about all of the sub use cases within professional education because I think there's probably at least a dozen meaningful ones. And all of them require different experiences to get people to those outcomes and into the, to those use cases. Yeah. I've primarily seen two branches emerge, which is the reskilling and upskilling. Reskilling is this like on like full-time immersive boot camp where you stop what you're doing and this is what you do for six to nine months. And it's all about hard pivoting in your career. Whereas I see that's fundamentally different than upskilling, which is more like an accelerator grief watch, where it's like you were talking about, this is solving a business problem. It's not about, it could be about job placement, but more than anything, it's about, hey, how do you move faster on this route? And specifically, you have a problem and how do you solve that problem? And here's a lightweight program that fits into your life anywhere from six, four, six weeks to six months. 
nights and weekends, and you surround a community around it. So I think this is actually a really good tra uh, transition to hearing a little bit more about Reforge and how that structure has worked. Actually, Reforge existed before the term cohort-based courses exist, right? <laughs> but yeah. since the term now has now become more popular, you guys have really leaned into it in, in your messaging. I'm curious to hear about the decision there. Yeah, and we're going to lean out of it soon, which is the other piece of it. I think that, yeah, look, we, we've always been this cohort-based model, even since the MVP in 2015, I would say. And, and look, they were really where this initially I wish I could say that I like we invented the thing. We did. We didn't. But, like this existed before. Like there were people like in the personal finance vertical, for example, that had that had like thing that had things like this. But but I think the our format to to this day is that we do run cohorts this year. We ran three cohorts: a spring, a summer, a fall. They're four to six weeks, depending on the program. Each week is a combination of things. You there's a series of things that you do asynchronously as an individual. Consume you consume some content. You prepare some thoughts like on a case. Come together at the end of the week so that there's this anchor every single week for the whole everybody in your program to come together. And we go through a featured guest case where we're applying parts of what you learned to a real example of a problem that some leader faced. And the general format is like, there's a problem set up, you apply, that everybody applies, we discuss the application, and then the feature guest talks about what, what happened in reality, the lessons learned, right? If they were to do it all over again. So you almost get this like practice rep at using the thing. And then there's steps that people can take after the program to go from practice to game time, where they move into game time and they choose one of the, they choose a specific area and, and start like using the things to execute in their environment, in, in their world. And so that's, that's essentially like the general format. There's some other community member member stuff that you can opt into if you want to do it, but that's like the core line, like the core line of the program. And it solved a lot of stuff. It made a lot of improvements on what was out there. It does, it does create more accountability to have everybody on a similar set schedule. It does create more opportunities for community and relationship building when a bunch of people are working through a similar set of coming together, working through a similar set of things like at the same time. It does fill some pieces in there. My ultimate view on this and why I think I, I constantly just think about got to keep moving, got to keep evolving, got to keep improving. And while these things were like, an improvement. I don't think they're like they're essentially a format iteration on top of on top of a traditional idea of a solution, which is a course. And courses, the solutions were really built hundreds of years ago and built for a physical environment, bringing people together in physical environments and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's like some huge improvements, but I think over the next eighteen months, you'll see reforge the product, add a bunch of things, and start to evolve away from the term. We started using the term just because it started to become an industry term. And a good thing that you can do for your audience is just figure out the easiest way to describe what you are and, and what you do in that moment so that they can make a decision whether it's the, the right thing right thing for them. Yeah. And it's, it was funny to actually use a Wayback Machine to go back and look at some of the previous versions of the guys' landing page. And it's been interesting oh to see <laughs> the progression, how you describe yourself. I think this is back in 2020. It was uh career development programs for ex 
experienced tech professionals in product marketing, data design, and engineering. And today it is, what have we got? Comprehensive cohort-based programs. Yeah, I will tell you it's ironic, but we are horrible at product marketing right now. <laughs> so actually, that website that you're looking at, the other thing that you probably noticed, is that it hasn't really changed in five or six years. <laughs> it is still the Squarespace oh site that I built seven oh years God. ago. And believe me, my marketing team is working on uh, a, a pretty big update and change in change to that. But that's just like our scrappy bootstrapped roots. Yep, Look at the ultimate end, end of the day. Yeah, we're terrible right now at product marketing. But the biggest driver, most of our customers, just come from word of mouth, which is exactly what we want, which is we want to find, we've, we started with that early group of early adopters, made sure that they had an amazing experience and they've been spreading it ever since. And it's just really cool. Like we have people that were in the original Reforge five, six years ago now that are in VP, C-level gigs at some awesome companies and they send their teams and it's, it's like, it's a fam, family that, grows over time. So it's, it's pretty interesting to see. Yeah, no, I, I love it. One of the things I, I want to end on, Brian, is we talk a lot about here about outcome-based education. And so I'd love to hear how, I guess, Reforge thinks about you built this program. How do you measure the success of your students? Obviously, everybody's coming in with their own problems and goals, but how, what are the kind of metrics you're using internally as a team to ensure that you guys are delivering on, on the promise. Yeah, right now, well, we can say right now, and then it, we're going to evolve this over time. But I think going back to our conversation earlier is, I think there's somewhat of a trap here of like, once again, the easiest things to measure aren't necessarily the things that create the most value for the customer, um, both the company and the individual. And that creates a really hard predicament there on on, on what you do. The way that we do it right now is essentially we we do a few things. We when somebody's in a cohort, we are measuring a course engagement, but qualitatively we're doing we there's multiple levels. We capture qualitative information specifically like at the concept level, so like the, the content that they're consuming. We do spot checks on on a weekly basis. Then we do a end of program survey, and then we do a follow-up. It depends anywhere between four to six months afterwards. And so what we're doing is measuring somewhat of the same, but also slightly different things, which is we want to... One of the things that we really deeply care about is relevance. Is what you're in this program, is this relevant to what you're working on? Is it connecting, is it connecting with you? And so like during the program, we're making sure that we got them in the right program, that it is close to what they're working on. If not, let's make a fast adjustment. At the end of the program, we're measuring that again, once they see the whole thing, along with program satisfaction, we're talking about, we're trying to ask questions like, how do you envision yourself um, applying this stuff? If they don't have a concrete answer about that, then that starts to signal some you know, some disconnect and, and some failure on our part. But the true test is six months afterwards when you go and have the conversations and you say, okay, in the last six months, what things did you apply from Reforge and what problems did they help solve for you? And what type of value did that create for you or for your company? And that's the true measure. And you get in, 
most of, oh, fortunately, most of our interviews in that case, they're recalling very specific things. They're talking about problems that are super meaningful and they're be able to describe the value, right? It, our product velocity has fundamentally changed or our retention, we've seen our retention and engagement cohorts have doubled. These are like super concrete, specific, specific things. But the thing about that is it's slightly different for everybody. So it's not like we can ask one question on a scale of one to 10 and come out with great, great measurement or benchmark everybody equally against each other. And I used to think that was a huge problem, but now I've just embraced it. And, and, and we've embraced it and accepted it as part of the model. Now, different models like a Lambda school helping you get a job, those are much more binary outcomes that are easier to measure in that way. There's other companies that I've seen that are like not helping you get your first job like the Lambda School, but it might be like, I'm a PM and I want to get a senior PM. And they basically teach the interview. And so the outcome there is, did you get the promotion or the up-level job at that company? Those things are easier to measure in more binary and con- concrete ways, whereas ours start to lean much more qualitative just based because of the outcome that we are trying to achieve. I think it's just different for everybody. Yeah. I love that. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, just as a last minute plug, how can the reshaping education audience learn more about Reforge and keep up with you on social media? Yeah, just uh, reforge.com. Um, I also have a personal website that I blog very episodically and sporadically, which is just brianbelfour.com. Uh, and then on Twitter, I'm just at Belfour. I'm actually more active on LinkedIn. So you can just connect with me on LinkedIn as as well. And yeah, wh- I hope I hope this was valuable for folks. And if people have any questions, you can always reach out to me. It's just my, it's just bbelfour at reforge.com. Feel free to email me anytime. Yeah. And listeners, I'll include a link uh, to reforge.com in the show notes, but I, it sounds like the, there's a big redesign coming. Oh, we'll be on the lookout for that. Brian, thank you so much for joining <laughs> the marketing us. Marketing team's probably going to kill me for saying that, but yeah. It's been soon, leaked. Soon. You heard it here yeah. first. <laughs> yeah. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. This was an absolute blast. Uh, we hope to talk to you again real soon. All right. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed that episode, would really appreciate a review or a subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off.